Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. The rest of you can open your Bibles to the book of Romans. We'll be looking at chapter 6 this morning. Romans 6, verses 5 through 11 on this Easter morning. Happy Easter to everybody. Uh, You all know uh, the the topic of the sermon you're about to hear. No surprises there. We're going to be talking about the resurrection. There's a lot of different angles we could take on the resurrection. We uh, We could consider the resurrection by looking to the past. We could think about um, the historical reliability of the gospel accounts for the resurrection. We could look and consider all that was accomplished for us there on the cross and in Jesus' resurrection by looking to the past. We could also spend time looking to the future. The resurrection has very powerful implications for our future, giving us confidence as we face death, as Pastor Brian just helped us reflect on. As we anticipate a universal resurrection coming one day, we could look to the future, but I don't really want to focus on either of those, actually, this morning. What I want to focus on is what the resurrection means for you right now. What does the resurrection mean in the present? I mean, this is a holiday, and most of us love holidays, so I'm not sure what your plans are for today. Perhaps you have family in town, maybe you're going to have a a meal later today, probably an Easter egg hunt if you have young children. Maybe that was yesterday, maybe that was this morning, maybe it's today, this afternoon. Uh, it, it's a happy day. I mean, the weather's going to be fantastic. Sun's going to be out. Temperatures are going to be warm. And it's just a happy, joyful occasion. But here's the, the truth is that tomorrow everything's going to go back to normal. <laughs> and you're going to have to get up and you're going to have to go to work. And you've got to get to work on those exams that you have and um, maybe you've got a doctor appointment coming up this week, and you're a little worried about it. It's like holidays come and go, and before long, we're, we're right back into the daily grind of our lives. And the question is, will the resurrection of Jesus have any impact on you during that time? What will the resurrection mean to you tomorrow? Tomorrow, meeting, not, tomorrow morning, not just today, but tomorrow morning. What difference will it make? I think probably all of us in this room um, desire to be different in some way. We, we all are aware of those opportunities we have to improve. We all are aware of our weaknesses, and we want to see change in our lives. You know, maybe for you, you, you want to learn to hold your tongue a little better, or, or maybe you, just, you want to know how to love people better. Or maybe you want to be a little more gentle with your children. Maybe you want to be more bold in evangelism. Maybe you want to work through some <clears throat> doubts you've been dealing with. Maybe you want to be less of a people pleaser. I mean, whatever it is, we've all got our deficiencies, and we want to see change, and we get frustrated because we don't see change happening. But I want to suggest to you today that the power for that kind of change is not just in willpower, friends. It's in the power of the resurrection. It's Jesus' resurrection from the dead that gives you power for real and lasting change in life right now. And that's what we're going to talk about here as we look at Romans chapter 6. We have been 
uh, going through actually here at New Life. Uh, can you advance me here, Dan? Okay, thank you. Um, we've been going through Romans, or excuse me, the book of Mark. We've been going through the book of Mark here at New Life, just kind of going through this book one uh, <clears throat> passage at a time. The book of Mark tells us the story of Jesus' life. Uh, today we're going to take a break from Mark and look at Romans, and what Romans does is tell us some of the theological implications of Jesus' life. Romans is very profound, deep theology, and uh, that's what we're going to be looking at here today. Romans is written by the Apostle Paul. This was probably written about 25 years after the resurrection of Jesus actually happened, and uh, <clears throat> chapter 6 is... Uh, uh, kind of fairly lengthy. We don't have time to go through the entire chapter, of course, so I've just chosen these verses 5 through 11 to take a look at. And so if you're able to stand, why don't you do that, please, out of respect for the reading of God's Word. And we'll look at Romans 6, 5 to 11. By the way, we have paperback Bibles underneath the chairs in front of you. If you're here today and you don't own a Bible and would like to take one of those Bibles home with you, we would offer that to you as our gift. But it will help you to have a Bible open before you, and uh, this passage is on page 549 in the paperback Bibles. Romans 6, starting with verse 5. For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over Him. For the death He died, He died to sin." Once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So, you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Holy Spirit, please give us ears to hear. Give us eyes to see. Let us behold wonderful things in your word today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You can be seated. <clears throat> all right. So, what does the resurrection mean for you and me today? The first thing is this. The resurrection means that you are dead to sin. So, when I say you here, or when Paul is writing this book, Romans, he's writing to uh, Christians in the city of Rome. He's writing to Christians. So, when I say you here, I, I mean Christians. Now, this is something that can be true for you. If you're not a Christian, this can be true for you, but, but what Paul has in mind is the reality for Christians. If you are a Christian, the resurrection means you are dead to sin. Now, let's just pause for a moment and think about this concept of sin, because it shows up quite a bit here in this passage. If you look at verse 6, Paul says uh, something about this body of sin being brought to nothing. He doesn't mean that the physical body is itself sinful. He just means that sin tends to work its way uh, in and through our bodies. And he's anticipating that being brought to, 
to nothing. If you go to the end of verse 6, he, he talks about being no longer enslaved to, to sin. There's that word again, sin. And then verse 7, the one who has died has been set free from, from sin. So, you know, whenever you see something repeated in the Scriptures, you want to pay attention to that. So, Paul is concerned with the problem of sin. Now, I, I don't want to just assume that we all kind of understand what certain terms mean. We talk about sin a lot here at New Life. Um, but some of you might be thinking, what do you mean by sin? So I, I just want to refer to um, <clears throat> our catechism, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, which has, I think, a very helpful definition of sin. Our problem is sin, and here's how the catechism defines it. It's any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. Now, this was written hundreds of years ago, so it's... <laughs> A little bit of an awkward construction. What that basically means is sin is doing what we shouldn't do, but failing to do what we should do. That, that's really important. You know, a lot of us think, okay, sin is doing things we shouldn't do. Well, I, I don't do too many bad things, you might be thinking to yourself. But that's not all there is to sin. Sin is also the things you should have done and you didn't do. You neglected to do. You didn't recognize that it needed to be done. You failed to do it. That's sin also. What Paul is saying here is that this, this is our problem, sin. Sin is the biggest problem that our world faces. I don't know what you think is your biggest problem. I don't know what that is in your mind, but I'll tell you what your biggest problem is. It's your sin. And it's not to suggest that every problem in your life is because of your sin. Another problem with sin is that people sin against you. And so that becomes a problem as well. Sin is the biggest problem facing the world. It's why there are wars in the world. It's why families break up. It's why there's poverty. It's why there's racism. It's why you find it difficult sometimes to do the right thing, and it's why you find it easy very often to do the wrong thing. It's because of sin. It's like a virus in your computer. You know, it just gets in there and gums everything up and slows everything down. It just affects the whole system. And that's sin. Now, the reason that sin is so bad, first and foremost, is because it is an offense against God, and that's what our catechism question is telling us. It's a transgression of the law of God. But there's another reason why sin is so bad, and that's because it's bad for you, too. Sin's bad for you. And the reason that it's bad for you is because it enslaves you. And so you notice how Paul mentions that at the end of verse 6, that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. The problem, not just a sin, but it's the power it has over us. It enslaves us. Jesus says it very clearly in John 8, 34, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Also in Romans 6, a little later in this chapter, Paul says, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, either of sin which leads to death or of obedience which leads to righteousness. You know, most of us think of sin as an exercise of our freedom. You know, you have a, a, a married couple and the, the husband feels trapped. He doesn't feel free and so he, he wants to um, cheat on his wife because he wants to assert his, his freedom. That's, that's what he thinks is happening. Or the person who decides that he or she doesn't want to have anything to do with God anymore. I mean, maybe I'm an agnostic. Maybe I'm an atheist now. Very often the reason for that is a desire for freedom, this feeling that you're being restricted or trapped 
by this God you have to obey. And so it's an exercise of alleged freedom. But what the Scriptures are telling us is that when you sin and resist God, you're not freeing yourself from anything. You're enslaving yourself to sin. We like to think of ourselves as so free to do whatever we want, but sin is more sinister than you realize. Do you remember that, um, that commercial years ago? This is going to age myself or date myself. I think it was back in the 80s, the, the ad for Lay's potato chips. And the kind of punchline was, uh, no one can eat just one. Remember that? And, and if you love potato chips, you know that that's largely true. Uh, <laughs> It, it is hard to just eat one potato chip. But the kind of the message behind the ad was this, that when you get the taste of just one, you're going to want the taste of another, and you're going to find it really hard to stop eating those potato chips. And sin acts exactly the same way. When you get a taste of it, you're going to want more, and you're going to think you're free to do whatever you want, but you're going to find yourself enslaved. I mean, you can see examples of it, people who say, I'm going to um, freely indulge in alcohol because I got the freedom to do it, and then suddenly the person finds out he can't stop drinking. Or the person who just wants to freely indulge in buying and spending and shopping, and then the person finds that they can't stop shopping. Or the person who just wants to freely indulge in looking at whatever he or she wants on the internet, and then you find out that you can't stop looking. That's slavery. That's what the Scriptures are saying. It's a kind of enslaving force or power. So that, that's the problem, sin. But what's the solution? The solution is something called union with Christ. Union with Christ. Might be the first time you've ever heard that phrase. You don't really hear about union with Christ a lot in churches, I think, because honestly, it's kind of hard to explain, kind of hard to understand. (laughs) But if you look at verse 5, look at verse 5, what Paul says here, if we have been united with Him, Him being Christ, if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. See that word united? It's union. He's talking about union with Christ. So, what is that? Well, it seems like what the Scriptures are telling us is that when you place faith in Jesus and you become a Christian, in some profound and mysterious and spiritual sense, you are joined to Jesus Christ. You're coupled with Him. You're you're bundled up with Him. You're you're packaged together with Him in in some way. I I suppose probably the best um, analogy would be that of a marriage. Uh, a man and a woman get married, and the way we describe it is that they become one flesh. They're joined together. There's a profound union there. But of course, when a man and a woman get married, they're both kind of living together at the same time with union with Christ. We're talking about being united to someone who lived on this earth 2,000 years ago. So that's what makes this perhaps a little bit difficult to understand. But this is what Paul is teaching us here. This is a union that is so intimate and close, the very significance of union with Christ is simply this, that whatever is said of Jesus can also be said of you, who has been united with Christ. Whatever we say of Jesus and whatever is true of Him is also true of you. His righteousness, His holiness, His purity, His life, His goodness, whatever you can say of Him 
can also be said of you. If I can go to the marriage illustration again, let's say you got a man and a woman, and say the man is really rich, the woman is poor, and they get married. They're now one flesh, they're in union. What is it that can be said about the man? He's rich. Once that woman is married to him, what do we say about her? She's rich too, because she is now in union with her husband. And when we are placed in union through faith with Jesus Christ, we are spiritually rich and wealthy because whatever is said about Jesus can also be said about us. So let's just look back to the text here. Look at verse 6. We know Jesus was crucified, right? That's what we studied on Good Friday. And look what Paul says here, verse 6. We know that our old self was crucified with Him. I mean, think of that. Your old self, that, that is your old self, that's the person you were before you became a Christian. Your, your unbelieving self, um, your unregenerate self, that self, that part of you was crucified with Jesus. In our Good Friday service, we closed by singing, were you there when they crucified my Lord? As a Christian, you know what you can say to that question? Yes, I was. Actually, I was there. My old self was hung up on that cross, was crucified, was put to death when Jesus died. And so that's why we look at the result here that Paul is talking about. He says, your old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin would be brought to nothing, that we would no longer be enslaved. We won't be slaves anymore for the one who has died not just Jesus, but us in union with Him, we have been set free from sin. The resurrection means you're dead to sin. It means you're free from sin. It means sin is not your boss. It means sin is not your master. It means sin does not have control over you. It means you're under new management, Christian. I mean, imagine that you're working at a restaurant and you have a boss and the boss is ruthless and mean and disrespectful and critical and angry and you're constantly working in these negative circumstances. And then you get a new boss. And the new boss is kind and loving and patient and affirming and encouraging. You're probably going to develop certain habits under that old mean boss that it might take some time to undo now that you're under the new gracious kind boss. But the fact is, you got a new boss now. You're free from that old boss. And Christian, that's what's true of you. You're, a, you're free from sin. Your former master has been eradicated. This is what Paul goes on to say here in verses 13 and 14. I didn't read this earlier, but he says, don't present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. Present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments of righteousness, for sin will have no dominion over you. So you're still, as a Christian, you're going to want to sin, and you're going to, you're, you're, you're going to sin, and you're going to stumble into sin. But, but the bottom line of what it means to be dead to sin, friends, is that you don't have to sin. You don't have to. You're set free. So the resurrection means you're dead to sin, but the resurrection also means you're alive to God. You are dead to sin, and you're alive to God. So remember, union with Christ, that's kind of what we're thinking about, still the central idea. If you go back to verse 5, um, 
If we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection. So that union with Christ applies not just to Jesus' crucifixion, but to his resurrection as well. We're united with him in his resurrection. Whatever is said about Jesus is said of you. So verse 8, verse 8, if we have died with Christ in union with him, we believe we will also live with him because... We are united with Him in His resurrection as well. And so, Paul actually states this in another place, Ephesians 2. He says, God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and He raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Your bodily resurrection is something that's happening in the future, but your spiritual resurrection, Christian, has already happened. You have been spiritually resurrected. You've been made alive. You're spiritually alive now, the Scriptures are saying. I love this quote from Sinclair Ferguson. Jesus rose and broke the power of both sin and death. Now He lives forever in resurrection life to God. Listen, The same is as true for us as if we had been with Him on the cross, in the tomb, and on the first resurrection morning. Just as certain as Jesus went to the cross, was buried in the tomb, and is risen from the dead, so it is true of you spiritually, Christian. You are raised up spiritually with Him. Now, I I don't want us to get kind of lost in these spiritual notions, that this is a spiritual truth, union with Christ, but these spiritual truths are based in a historical reality. I'm not suggesting that Jesus is just a spiritual being. I'm not suggesting that this is a myth or a fable or or a legend. Jesus was a, a real man, born in Bethlehem, brought up in Nazareth, worked as a carpenter, taught the crowds, performed miracles, was unjustly crucified, executed on a cross, was raised from the dead. And so that's what Paul is talking about in verse 9. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. So he's talking about a historical reality there. But what we're called to do, what the Scriptures call us to do, is put personal faith in that man, Jesus, in his life, death, and resurrection. And when you do that, There is a spiritual resurrection that takes place. You're made alive. So what does that mean, to be alive alive to God? It means something like this. Like, you know, you used to just kind of live your life as if God didn't even exist, and now you find yourself talking to Him. That's called prayer. You actually want to pray. You want to communicate with God. You look at the Bible, and the Bible seems hard to understand and difficult, but there's something in you that wants to know more about it. You have an appetite for the Scripture. You used to resent your enemies, and you would have nothing to do with them, and you said things like, I will never forgive that person as long as I live. And now your heart is softening a little bit. And, you know, there are hurts there that need to be dealt with, but you kind of want to know how to love that person now. You used to be afraid of death. You used to just be terrified by the Uh, end of your life, but now you feel like you're ready. You feel like you're ready to die because of what Paul is saying here in verse 
9. Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. And because it no longer has dominion over him and you are in union with him, it no longer has dominion over you. And so this means something to you. This, this affects the way you, you live. There's a change. That's what it is to be alive to God. And I would say this too, you know, if you have no interest in praying to God and you have no interest in His Bible and you hate your enemies and you're terrified of death, it could mean that you're dead to God and you need to be born again. But this has a lot to say also just about identity, you know, the way we look at ourselves. I think one of the most encouraging things about this text, friends, now is that your identity Your identity in this world is no longer wrapped up in your past. Your identity is wrapped up in Christ's past. What defines you is not the things that you've done in the past. It's what Jesus has done in the past. That's what defines you now. You're not defined by your mistakes, by the opportunities that you've squandered, by your financial mismanagement, by the adultery that you committed, or the abortion that you had, or the divorce that you had. You're not defined by those things, Christian, because you're united to Christ. You have a new identity. You're not defined by your sexual orientation. You're not defined by the verbal or physical abuse that you suffered as a child. Those things don't define you. You're defined by what Jesus has done for you because you're now united to Him by faith. A guy named R.A. Torrey, I think, just put this really well. It's kind of a long quote, but I think it's, it's worth reading. When Jesus died, He died as my representative, and I died in Him. When He arose, He rose as my representative, and I arose in Him. When He ascended up on high and took His place at the right hand of the Father in the glory, He ascended as my representative, and I ascended in Him. And today I am seated in Christ, with God in the heavenlies. I know that atonement has been made for my sins. I look at the open tomb and the risen and ascended Lord, and I know that atonement has been accepted. There no longer remains a single sin on me, no matter how many or how great my sins have been. When that is true of you, friends, you come alive spiritually. And what Paul is telling us is that the resurrection means you are alive to God. So the last thing is this, very simple conclusion from these first two points. The resurrection means you're dead to sin. The resurrection means you're alive to God. So believe that you're dead to sin and alive to God, Christian. Believe it. Look at verse 11. So, he says, you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Here's something very important to notice, friends. Everything that we have covered, everything that I've talked about so far in this sermon, in these first several verses, from verse 5 to verse 10, there's not one command in any of those verses. This passage is not saying you must die to sin. It's not saying you must live to God. No, it's saying you have died to sin. You are alive to God. So, therefore, believe it. Consider it to be true. Uh, if I could share just a little grammar lesson here. Um, there are different kinds of statements. There are indicative statements which describe what is true. There are imperative statements which describe what to do. 
So far in what we've covered in verses 5 through 10, there are no imperative statements. The imperative statement comes in verse 11. Verses 5 to 10 are all indicative. They're all saying what, what, is, what is true. They're all saying what is, what is the reality. The imperative is now believe in what Paul, by God's Spirit, is telling us that is true. This is exactly the way the gospel works, isn't it? The gospel is not an imperative. The gospel is not a command to try harder and do better and be more moral and start doing this and stop doing that. That's not the gospel. The gospel is not an imperative. It's an indicative. It's a statement. Jesus has died on the cross and He has risen from the dead. That's the gospel. The imperative is, believe it. And this is what Paul is telling us. There are truths, there are things about you that are true, and the challenge of the Christian life is believing that they're true. I'm not suggesting at all that what Paul is telling us is that we won't struggle with sin or that we won't be tempted with sin, because we will. Sin will continue to be a struggle and a fight for all of us. But I would suggest that in most cases, if not all cases, when we fall into temptation to sin, what's really going on is that we are forgetting who we are. We're just forgetting what is true of us. We're forgetting what Paul has told us. It's a, if I can use a marriage analogy once again, it's like if you can imagine a husband who is tempted to commit adultery on his wife. He's contemplating that. He's thinking about that. A good husband will bring to his memory who he is, a married man. I can't do this. I forgot who I was. I was wanting to be single. I was wanting to go back to my former life, but I can't do that. I'm a married man. And the Christian should think similarly when you're tempted. I'm tempted to perform this sin here, but I got to remember who I am. I'm dead to sin. I'm alive to God. I've got to act accordingly. I mean, maybe you've heard people talk about... Uh, you know, you have a certain last name, and maybe there's a certain honor attached to that last name. And a father might say to his child, you know, look, don't, you're, a, you're a Johnson, you're a Smith, you know, you're, you're an O'Bannon. Act like who you are. Or when a child begins to, to, to grow up, and, um, you know, he's 15, 16 years old, and he starts acting like he's six or seven years old, what do parents say? Act your age. Act in accordance with who you are. You're older now. You're more mature. Don't defy your identity by acting differently. That's, I think, what Paul is just telling us here. Consider now yourselves to be dead to sin and alive to God and act accordingly. So, um, th this is the burden of every, of every preacher. Uh, every single Sunday morning, including today, I think Pastor Brian would probably concur with this, but there, there are really kind of two things we're trying to do. I mean, there's a lot of things we're trying to do, but I'd say two basic things we're trying to do from the pulpit when the Word is preached. One thing we want to do is convince unbelievers they're slaves to sin because the unbeliever doesn't want to believe that. The unbeliever wants to think, I can do whatever I want, and sin is not a problem for me. If you're an unbeliever, I want you to know, according to the Scriptures, you're a slave to sin, and you need to be born again. You need to be redeemed from that problem and only Jesus can do it. I, I want to convince you of that. You're a slave to sin. But here's the other thing that, that we're always trying to do up here on Sunday mornings, is try to convince believers that you're not a slave to sin. 
because often it's hard for us as believers to believe that, isn't it? Just the way we behave, the things that we do, the besetting sins, the recurring habits, and it's just our experience seems to be contrary to what we know is true. But friends, you have to rely on what the Scripture says, because what the Bible says is more true than your daily experience. So, this is my exhortation to you, friends. Tomorrow morning is coming. Back to the grind. It's all going back to normal. Holiday's over. So, when you wake up tomorrow morning, tell yourself something. Say, self, you are dead to sin and alive to God. So, let's go and live in newness of life. And don't do that just tomorrow morning. Do that every morning because that's who you are, believer. God, thank you so much for the resurrection of Jesus. We thank you, Lord, so much for all that it means for us, not just our hope beyond the grave, not just the forgiveness of sins that we have in what you have accomplished for us, but also, Lord, in the power that the resurrection provides for us today. Thank you, Lord. You have freed us from sin, and you have made our spirits alive. Help us to live in accordance with who we are, who you've made us to be in the gospel. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.